0: I just want to say that uh, the guys up in the booth have a lot of control. Like, if they don't want you to sing a line, you're just not going to get it. It's just not there. That wasn't accidental. They just wanted to sing different words than what you were doing. Um, I, and what's amazing, too, is Paul is almost unflappable. Did you see? They just like cruised right through. Like, doesn't matter. Uh, real quick, I just want to remind you, uh, kids elementary age or older, if you want to, we've got these cool sermon note pages on here that have got all kinds of information that you can fill in during the sermon. And I know it's going to be so good today that you're going to need to use the back, you know, blank space and add extra stuff. Those sermon notes are on the back wall right there with pens and pencils. Give you a little something to do. We're encouraging you to write something during church. So That's pretty exciting, right? So if you guys want to grab those, they're back there. Feel free. Have at them. Um, we are in our very last sermon uh in this series and I just want to say if you have not been here yet or if this is your first week or you kind of dipped in and out uh that's totally fine you don't feel like you're going to be like what is going on you know it's not like a tv show where you got to watch the first four episodes to figure out what's going on the fifth we're going to like we're going to bring you up to speed you're going to feel okay about this What we are talking about today is probably, and and arguably, one of the most important passages in the Bible. And I realize that's not fair to say, right? Like, how is one passage more important than the others? But it's one of, like, the key passages, for sure. In fact, I've been finding this out through my studies. It's probably one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Uh, People have just tons of different ideas about what these words mean. So if you haven't been with us, we've been exploring Matthew chapter 16, and we've been starting in about verse 15 or so, and just kind of making our way slowly through this passage. And it's Jesus, this is is interesting to me, Jesus has been all around Israel, he's been talking to people, he's been going from town to town. But for whatever reason, in this story, he walks his disciples 20 miles out of the country, has this conversation with them, and then walks them back. There's something, it feels like something significant and important about what he's saying, and you can kind of get that as you read the passage. So it's been Matthew chapter 16. We're not going to read it quite yet. I want to do just a little bit of setup to help us get kind of in the right frame of mind. Um, I thought Derek's uh, uh, communion talk was perfect, right online. In fact, he probably could have preached this sermon because what he talked about is so much of what I want to talk about this morning as well. And then I use the word disruption versus interruption. And you know what I'm talking about, like just in life, like maybe uh, you're fixing something around the house and you're getting to work on it, and you're all set, and you've got a little bit of time dedicated to fixing this thing. And then you realize you don't have the right part, and then you drive all the way to the hardware store. And then you come back, and you realize they gave you the wrong size, or you picked up the wrong thing. And you're just like, you're getting, your anxiety, not anxiety level, your frustration level is just rising a little bit. But you're like, okay, I still can do this. I still got this, you know, and then you go back to the hardware store, get another thing and you come back and you work on that and get a little bit further along. Joey knows what I'm talking about. You get a little further along and then something else breaks or so you get in deeper. and What you thought was going to be 30 minutes or an hour turns into like four or five hours and by the time you're done with it, you got just junk everywhere and you have to call the plumber anyway. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, And it can be this way no matter what. You could be baking something. You could be fixing something. You could be driving somewhere. In my responsibilities here at church, uh, one of the things I do is work with the youth group, and we sometimes go on road trips. And I know people love road trips. People love road trips. Generally, people who aren't driving love road trips. I don't know if you've noticed that. The drivers aren't quite as excited about the road trips because here's what happened. Don't tell the youth group I'm telling you this. They're sitting over there. I don't want them to know that I'm kind of... Uh, ragging on them a little bit. But sometimes what will happen is you're driving somewhere and it's far away and you want to make good time. And so you try to get all your one-stop shopping done at that gas station. You're like, everybody's got to go to the bathroom. Everybody's got to get their snacks. Everybody's got to get out and stretch their legs. And there's always this kid, one kid, who's like way in the back of the van and they're like, I'm good, I'm not hungry. I don't have to go to the bathroom. And you're like, come on, seriously, you know, I, 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 we're not, I don't think we, we can't stop. You know, what are we going to do? So they sit there through the whole stop. And this happened. This has been a number of years ago. And there's some people in the room who are in the van and this happened. It literally happened. Might have been the people that caused it to happen. Literally happened where we stopped at a gas station. I'm like, all right, come on. you got to go to the bathroom. Everybody's got to go to the bathroom. And there was this one holdout. And they're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We get back on the highway. No joke. We were about 200 yards down the highway. And they're like, actually, I do got to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, we are not stopping for 600 miles. I don't care if we run out of gas. You have to lean out a window and do something because we are not stopping. It is so frustrating to have those sorts of disruptions when you're trying to get something done. Disruptions are frustrating. I think, in fact, like disruptions, like for first world problems, disruptions to what we want to get done, disruptions to our happiness, disruptions to our way of life, to our productivity, to our efficiency. Those are some of the most frustrating things in life. Just little disruptions. And I get that it's kind of like a first world problem, but they are frustrating. It is frustrating not to just do what you want to do, not to just be able to get done what you want to get done. We've all experienced that. We've all felt that. All right, now let's transition to this passage, and we're going to work our way back to that idea. In this passage, uh, you can go back one, not yet, not quite yet, Matt. You got to hold on, man. We got, we're working. We got these guys in training. Um. So, in this passage, Matthew chapter 16, it's Jesus talking with just his apostles, just his disciples, just the like, inner circle, and he's talking to them about the church. And they don't know anything about it yet. They don't understand, like, oh yeah, in 2,000 years everybody's going to get together on Sunday and they're going to sing songs and they're going to have PowerPoint or not have the words or whatever. He doesn't know anything about They don't know anything about the church. They don't know anything about Bible classes. They don't know anything about youth group, road trips. They don't know anything about this. This is a new idea that Jesus has come to form this gathering of people And they're going to like slowly but surely kind of grow and have this incredible overarching impact on the world. They don't know any of this yet. They're just at the beginning stages of it. This is like the beginning of this little rebellion. And Jesus has got just his closest guys with him and he's beginning to outline what this looks like. And it's all based around this idea. You remember a few chapters or a few verses earlier, Jesus says, Who do people say I am? What's the word on the street? And they give him the answers. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. These are all dead guys that evidently had come back to life. I don't know. And, uh, and Jesus says, who do you say I am? Remember, and then you've got all the apostles there. And of course, it's always Peter. Peter's always the one. He's always the one with his hand up. He's always the one that wants to talk. He's always the one that wants to be like the star student. And Peter like steps up. He's like, ooh, pick me, pick me, pick me. And he goes, I believe, and I think he's speaking for the apostles, I believe that you are the Messiah. And we spoke about in the first series, we spoke, or the first sermon in the series, we spoke about how that word was huge. This was a big deal to say that Jesus was the Messiah, because in first century Israel, you were saying that Jesus was the one that had been prophesied about for centuries, and this was the one that was gonna fix our problems, this is the one that was gonna lead our nation, this is the one that was gonna just take everything, kick out the Romans, this was the one that was gonna like renew everything, and you're saying that's the one. The, the Hebrew leaders, the religious leaders, they had seen some guys like this come and go and they were skeptical of it. The Roman soldiers, the Roman leadership who like ruled Rome at the time, they didn't like that because they heard, when they heard rebellion, they didn't hear like kind of this spiritual rebellion. They heard like, hey, he's gonna like give everybody pitchforks and knives and swords and whatever and they're gonna like m- try to rebel. They're gonna, we want this country, they're gonna try to rebel. So this was like a big deal, to claim that Jesus was the Messiah. It's a big deal. So here it is. This is the person. They've, Jesus has been laying out this vision. And you can, Peter and the other apostles are like getting wound up. They're getting excited. Jesus is preaching away at them. He's telling them, Look, I'm going to build this gathering of people, I'm going to build this church. Gates of Hades will not prevail. And Peter's like, Yeah, preach it. He's getting excited. I know he's just, he's feeling it. And he keep, Jesus talks about like how, hey, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And, the, and, and whatever you bind on earth. Remember we talked about that last week. The followers of Jesus have been given this authority to, for spiritual formation in one another's lives. And Peter's excited. He's excited. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's make this happen. I'm excited. We're way up in Caesarea Philippi. Let's walk back the 20 miles. Let's march on Jerusalem. This is it. Jesus is here. This is the guy we've been waiting centuries for. And then Jesus wraps up this moment... By saying these words, Matthew 16, 20. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That's like a record scratch moment. I hit the brakes like, whoa, wait a second. You have been getting us pumped up for this rebellion. You've been getting us all excited. You've been telling us that, that God has inspired us to know that you're the Messiah. And now you don't want us to tell anybody? What, what, what is that about? He ordered them. The word order actually carries with it like, some, like a, a threat. So Jesus was like, I don't know, he's in Peter's face. And he's like, Peter, do not tell anybody about this. And Peter's like, what are you talking about, man? This is it. This is the news. Our nation has waited centuries for you, and now you want us to keep it quiet? What is up with that? That doesn't make sense to me. And in fact, this was kind of a feature of Jesus' teaching. There's a number of places throughout the Gospels, throughout Matthew specifically, uh, where he tells them he does something, he heals someone, and he says, don't tell anybody. And it's pretty interesting. In fact, uh, there's one, a few chapters, (laughs) there's a few chapters earlier where Jesus healed two guys that were blind, right? Two guys that were blind, Jesus heals them, and the text says he sternly warned them not to tell anybody, sternly warned them not to tell anybody. Think about that for a second. You're blind, now you can see, and Jesus is like, hey, keep this on the down low. Don't tell anybody. Even if they wanted to, how are they supposed to do that? They're just going around town looking at things, because now they can look at things. And somebody comes up to him and is like, hey, weren't you, weren't you blind yesterday? Nope. I've just been wearing sunglasses for 30 years. Everybody assumed. I, I can see just fine. He did this to, like, lepers He did this to people who couldn't walk. He was like, you're healed. Take up your mat and leave. Don't tell anybody. And they see the paralyzed guy walking around. Hey, what happened? Nothing. I just, I'm really lazy. I like laying down. I just decided to take a walk now. How were they not supposed to tell? There was like visible evidence in their lives that something had happened. And Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody. Like, what are they supposed to do? Like, I get excited when I get a haircut. I all come home and I'm like, hey, green, notice anything different? Huh? Notice anything different? A haircut. And they're like walking and seeing and they're not supposed to tell anybody. What? That doesn't even make sense. Why would he do that? How are they not supposed to tell anybody? Why are they not supposed to tell anybody? He ordered them. Don't, don't bring it up. Don't bring it up. Imagine poor Peter. Like, I I just, I like Peter so much, but imagine him. These Pharisees, these religious leaders that opposed Jesus were always getting in the disciples' face. They didn't always like confrontation with Jesus, so they would pick his disciples. You know how people do that. They don't want to actually go to the person they have the problem with. They go to the people around them. They go to their friends. They're like, you hear what they did? You hear what they said? So they would go to the disciples. They would go to Peter. And they would literally say things to Peter like, who does your rabbi think he is? And Peter was supposed to like zip the lip. You know he had a couple guys holding him back, nudging him in the ribs. Remember, we're not supposed to tell. Keep it on the down low. Because Peter wanted to say, who do you think he is? He's the Messiah. This is the guy. We've been waiting for centuries. Who do we think he is? You guys are ridiculous. Hey, he's going to do some miracles, but maybe next time the miracle won't be healing something. Maybe it'll be breaking something, if you know what I'm saying. I know Peter was feeling that. Peter, like, how do you keep this news quiet that the Messiah is here? How? And more importantly, why? Why? This directive, I think, points us to something really important about this idea we're talking about. The reason he told them to keep it quiet points to something really important about this message. And it's this. The message. The message that Jesus was the Messiah, the message was disruptive. The message was disruptive. And Jesus had some things to do. He had some people to teach. He had some blind people to heal. He had some lepers to take care of. This message was disruptive. If it started to get out, it was going to prevent Jesus from doing what he needed to do. The message was disruptive. I uh, get a little stressed when I hear the ice cream truck coming down the street. And this is why. Because somehow hardwired at least into my children's DNA is this sense that they have been endowed by their creator a certain and unalienable right that if an ice cream truck drives by they are entitled to whatever overpriced treat that ice cream driver has they feel like they have got to have it and so i hear the ice cream truck the kids are out in the yard and i'm like even before i try to preempt them i'm like hey guys we're not getting ice cream they don't even hear the truck yet they're like what is he that's such a non sequitur they Kids don't say that, but what that, like, what is he talking about? No ice cream, no ice cream. And then they hear the little ding a ling a ling 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 and they're like, boom. The, the, seriously, genetically hardwired in their body is like ice cream. ice. That's all they think about, ice cream. And so I've been like trying to set them up like, hey guys, we're not getting ice cream. All right, that's random, Dad, but whatever. And I'm like, we're not getting ice cream. And then they hear the little bells, and they're like, ice cream, ice cream. And I'm like, remember when I said two seconds ago, we're not getting ice cream? Now you guys are like, you're such a heartless parent. You should buy them ice cream. We had bought them ice cream at the ice cream truck the day before. And that evil 17-year-old kid came back again. He like drove down our street because he knew he could see it in my eyes that he was disrupting my family. And so I started to get a little stressed. I was like, guys, we're not getting ice cream. We're not getting ice cream. And pretty soon, I have this riot in my front yard. Kids have signs, we need ice cream. (laughs) Down with dad, ice cream. And I'm like, guys, we're not getting it. And that 17-year-old's just driving by, looking at me, direct eye contact, real slow. And I'm like, speed it up, buddy. Hit the gas. Get out of here. You're causing me problems. No ice cream. The ice cream truck, it's like the message, the bells, literally Pavlov's dogs. It is disruptive. Like, they cannot concentrate. No matter what they were doing, that gets thrown out the window because the message of ice cream is here. The ice cream truck has arrived. It's here now. And it's going to change our lives, and this ice cream is going to make everything better. The ice cream truck is disruptive. This is a sketchy ice cream truck. You shouldn't buy any ice cream from that truck that looks like that. That's not a good ice cream truck. We all know that there are things that we can say or do uh, to loved ones that will immediately cause a fight, right? You know that there are buttons you can push. There are no, you know that there are words you can say immediately will cause a fight. You immediately will cause a problem. Because you've said something that both you and your spouse or you and your child or you and your parent know that is something that is going to cause a fight, right? You know that, and so you know to avoid those things unless you're really feeling like you want to fight. It's a disruption. It will cause, it'll cause a disruption. When people declared Jesus the Messiah, those were fighting words. We've lost that a little bit, and we're going to talk about why, but we've lost that. If you were walk, to walk around the street saying, Jesus is the Messiah, nobody's going to care. Because we've lost what the Messiah means. We've lost the importance of that concept of that word. But those were fighting words. Those were like bells that brought out the fight in the religious leaders. Like Jesus is the Messiah? No, uh uh he doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't look the way he's supposed to look. He hasn't done the things he's supposed to do if he's the Messiah. In fact, they were convinced he wasn't the Messiah because he had suffered and he had died. They're like, the Messiah doesn't die like that. That's ridiculous. And so they were fighting words. They were Pavlov's bells. They were the ice cream truck saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. And people were like, nope, nope, nope. And it would cause fights. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, and this is long after the injunction not to speak about the Messiah, and it was lifted, Jesus said you can speak about it in the end of the book of Matthew chapter 28. But in Acts chapter 17, as they're trying to spread this word about Jesus the Messiah, this is Paul talking to people in Thessalonica, and he says, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Which is interesting, that concept is over and over. The message they preached was Jesus is the Messiah all through Acts. It's very interesting to look at, he said. In verse 4, it says this, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. People were kind of persuaded by the message. This was just this was doing something. This was gaining some ground. But, in verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. And it's an interesting word itself, jealous. It can, it can also mean like boiling over. It's a, it's, it's a word that sounds like water boiling. So maybe people were angry. They were angry at this message. Other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I like that phrase. They rounded up some shady dudes from the marketplace and they formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. This message in the first century started riots. Doesn't do much today. You're not going to go into a grocery store and say Jesus is the Messiah and then have a riot form around you because you've said that. Now it's a different culture. It's a different age. Maybe there's things people have accepted about Jesus that we have kind of that have changed over the over the years. But the message isn't disruptive today. And I want to propose a reason why. I wonder if we have tried to make the message less disruptive. Bear with me here for a minute. The message of the Messiah was disruptive. It is not disruptive today. And there may be a lot of reasons, but I want to propose at least one of which might be, mean that Christians have tried to make the message of the Messiah less disruptive. We've tried to smooth down the sharp edges. We've tried to make everything a little bit more palatable so that when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about Christianity, people aren't getting upset because there's really no change involved. There's really nothing that, that disrupts their daily life, their daily existence when we proclaim this message of the Messiah. I wonder if for some people we've changed the message to something like here's a set of principles that will make your life a little happier. And that's the message. I wonder if maybe the message is, here's a few thoughts that will make you a little bit more moral than you are. You'll hold doors open for people and you'll wave at your neighbors as, as you see them in their front yard. Just a little bit more moral. Here's the message. This makes you a little bit of a better person. A little bit happier. A little bit of a better person. I, I wonder if for some people the message is a political philosophy that makes us mad and disagree with other people on issues like border security and immigration I wonder if that's how they've interpreted the message of the Messiah, as if it's some sort of political call, and it's informed somehow by that. And all those things, our politics should be informed by our message. Our morality should be informed by our message. Our sense of happiness and our sense of how we interpret joy and sorrow should be informed by the message. But if we leave it at that, then I think that we have missed the message. If it's just these marginal, small, little changes in our lives, just little things, nothing too personally disruptive. All right, so, okay, Patrick, explain yourself. What do you mean then when you say disruptive, when you say it should change us, when you say it should make, make something happen, when you say it should cause riots and mobs, what are you talking about? A few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 10, and let me trigger warning on this passage, by the way, this passage is a little crazy. This is not one that you see stenciled on the wall in people's houses. This is a pretty wild passage. But I would, this is the words of Jesus when he's trying to explain himself and the effect that this message is going to have on the world. This is Jesus saying this is the effect that it's going to have on the world. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Whoa! We've been singing Christmas songs that say peace on earth goodwill toward men. Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? And Jesus himself says, do not suppose, do not assume I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace. Wait a second, Jesus. This does not sound like the Jesus I know. This does not sound like the Jesus that that teaches us to hold doors open for for people at the mall or or to wave at our neighbors. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace? Is this militant? What are you talking about? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus, you're losing me here. Verse 35. For I have come to turn a man against his father. A daughter against her mother. This one's a little funny. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I don't know if you needed much help for that one, but... Verse 36. A man's enemies will be members of his own household... If anyone... Listen to this. If anyone... Write this on your wall. This, is, does, this verse doesn't get too, underlined too often. If anyone loves their father or mother more than me, they are not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That is a disruptive message. He's saying the effect of believing that I am the Messiah is going to divide people because there's people that cannot accept this. Now... Let me just pause for just a second and say there are Christians who have decided, you know what, if somebody's not upset with me, then maybe I'm doing it wrong, and they try to go around making everybody upset with them. And that's not what he's talking about here. I hope we understand that. We're not talking about provoking and causing offense for its own sake, as if that somehow validates who we are. There are Christians who believe, well, they're going to hate us, so I'm doing something right. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christianity, lived like Jesus, will cause division. There will be people that do not understand why you value the things you value, why you prioritize the things you prioritize. There are family members and neighbors who will say, hey, can you come do this for me? And you will say, no, I've already got this thing for my church family that I'm going to be doing. And they're going to say, how can you value your church family over your real family? And you will say, this is how it works. Jesus has come in my life and he has given me a different set of priorities. And as much as I love you, you are not number one on that list. And they won't understand that. And they might get upset at you. That might bother them. And it's bothering some of you. I can tell. Some of you are squirming. Like, wait a second. Family is the number one value. Family is the number one priority. Isn't that what our society is built on? Not according to Christ. I've come to bring division. And there are choices that we will make in the pursuit of following Christ that the people around us will not understand, will not agree with, will not be happy with, and it will cause division. That is a natural byproduct of a life centered around Christ. It's almost off-putting, isn't it? That's not good PR for Christianity. Now, before you go telling your mother-in-law off, we understand this message will cause disruption. But listen to this. If we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if we believe that he's the one prophesied about, if we believe that he's the one sent by God to redeem and restore the world, and if we believe he invites us to help in that redemption and restoration process, then Jesus is the Messiah. It becomes a disruptive force in our lives. Our lives change. There's things that we were thinking about doing that need to change. There's left turns we need to make because Jesus is the Messiah. There's choices that we need to make differently because we're valuing Christ over all else. That should affect our lives. The message that Jesus is the Messiah should be this, this weight around which everything else in our lives gets drawn into its orbit. It's this gravitational pull where Jesus is the center, and the things that don't fit with that get spun off because they are not important. And it will cause division. You'll have to go to your little kid's coach and say, I'm sorry he can't come to that game or that practice because we got church stuff going on. And that coach is, well, if you got church stuff going on, then he's not going to get to start. And you're going to have to say, I'm so sorry because this is more important. You're going to have to make choices that deny you advancement. And you're like, nope, nope, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. And Jesus is here to tell you that is not how it works. I have come to bring disruption. I have come to bring division. You're, if you truly want to follow me, if you truly want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. How uncomfortable are we right now? You know what? We should be. Because disruption is uncomfortable. When Jesus comes into our lives and he says, look, we got to rearrange those priorities, it should be uncomfortable. It should be unpleasant. Because he's saying that this interruption, thank you, Derek, he's saying that this disruption, this interruption, this is taking your life in this direction, and it is unpleasant. We don't like disruptions. We're like, Jesus, i got it figured out. i got a plan. This is the way I want my life to be. And Jesus is saying, nope, we're going to take a left turn here. It should be unpleasant. It should be uncomfortable. We expect that. Who gets married... And thinks their life is gonna be exactly the same. Who has kids and think nothing thinks nothing is gonna change, right? Ask a parent who's awake at 3 a.m. trying to help their little one fall asleep. Hey, is life exactly the same before and after? <laughs> no. Is life the same before and after marriage? Not at all. But somehow we think that life can be relatively the same before and after Jesus Christ in our lives. Who are we fooling? Just us. We're the only ones who are getting confused there. You may have uh, <clears throat> heard this story over the weekend, uh, last weekend, I guess, and I don't know, I love news, I follow news, it, 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 I am interested and infuriated all at the same time, right? And it just seems like there's more news than you can handle every day at this point. Last weekend, there were more riots, I mean, everybody's rioting. The people who riot are writing about the other people who are rioting, and then there's riots about everybody who's rioting, and it's just mobs and riots, and everybody's upset at everybody, right? It's a problem, it seems to be. And uh, last weekend in Berkeley, there was another riot, and there were these guys that hate these guys, and and there were more of these guys than these guys, and so these guys started beating up at these guys, and everybody's mad at each other, everybody's riot, everybody's upset, and in fact, at one point, one of the bad guys fell down, and the good guys surrounded him and started beating him with the stuff that they had, and there was a reporter on the sidelines. Reporters are typically supposed to be unbiased observers who who present an objective view of the the events and the circumstances. But in this case, here's a guy, whether or not... They shouldn't be objective, right? Reporters should not be objective. I'm not making a political statement here. But here's a guy being beaten, and he's worried that he's going to be beaten to death. And so he, in the red, throws himself on a guy who doesn't value his humanity. The guy underneath him believes that the guy protecting him is not as important. The guy underneath him believes that he's superior to the guy that's protecting him. That's the politics going on in his mind right now. And the guy says, uh-oh, there is a human being beaten and potentially going to get killed. And he throws himself on top of this other person to protect him. I, I read a lot about this. His name's Al Letson. I read a lot about this this week, and I was just inspired by that. Like, that, what a sacrificial choice. What a Jesus-like thing to do, Right? And so, there was a couple of things I heard in an interview that I listened to that he said that made me in the back of my mind think, I wonder if this guy's informed by his faith a little bit and just, you know, hasn't been as public. And so, I shot in the dark, I emailed, I emailed the guy in red, and I was like, hey, uh, I'm just curious, you know, I was inspired by what you did, just curious a little bit, Um, he's the son of a minister. Do you think that your faith kind of informed that choice in that moment, that reaction, that instinct? And shockingly, like two minutes later, he wrote back. And now I feel like a celebrity because somebody I read about wrote me back. I'm like, I want to frame the email, you know? I was like, it feels so good. And he wrote back and he said, absolutely. Let me give you the quote. This is what he said, real short and sweet. Um, he, he goes, absolutely. That was what made me jump in, even though the tension and the stakes were high, was his faith. His faith caused him to disrupt His instincts and his worry about what was happening, his faith caused a disruption. And he did something differently because of his faith than he would have otherwise. Your faith should disrupt your life. In fact, let me say this. If your faith is not disrupting your life, you should probably take a little stock in your faith. If your faith is not asking you to do things that are uncomfortable or out of the norm, then maybe you should check out what's going on in your life. Let me wrap up by saying this. When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the Messiah, disruption isn't an inconvenience. It's not another trip to the hardware store. It's not another trip to the grocery store. It's not the ice cream truck coming down the road and you have to keep your kids from rioting. It's not an inconvenience to be avoided. But disruption from the Messiah is a call to be pursued. Disruption from the Messiah is a call to be pursued. Kids, if you're writing notes, if nothing else, that's a good one to write now. Disruption from the Messiah is a call to be pursued. So this week, you're going to have opportunities for disruption. And so my challenge, my encouragement, is to not just write those things off. God is going to be calling you. Jesus is going to be calling you to maybe do different things this week than you might normally have done. Don't throw those opportunities away. Don't avoid those. Don't look at Jesus as an inconvenience to your normal routine and your daily schedule. Understand that Jesus places disruption in our lives to guide us, to shape us, to give us opportunities to be obedient to follow him we're going to pray and then we are going to be dismissed father in heaven lord we are so grateful to gather here lord i'm so personally thankful that all these people uh interrupted what could have been a normal sunday morning for them and came to this room to sing together and to take uh uh, the the bread and the cup together and to listen together and maybe hopefully grow together Uh, Lord, I pray that we would look at the disruptions, the spiritual faith disruptions in our lives, and that we would understand that they're, they're potentially a call from you to something deeper and something greater and something better. Lord, help us not to choose ease and comfort over those things. Help us to choose you no matter where it takes us. Help us to choose to be sacrificial and to be inconvenient and to potentially lose our life for the sake of gaining it. We thank you for the disruptions that you will put in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.